Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Sue, we have a problem. I was sorting through our DVD collection the other day, uh, alphabetizing them and sorting them in accordance with a sort of variation of my own Dewey system. And, well, I found what can he be described as this, this object which I'm holding in my hands now. Now, I thought we were all quite clear, and indeed we laughed about it, that this was perhaps one of the worst examples of cinematic treats that could possibly be thrust upon the poor viewing audience. It is terrible in just about every conceivable metric, yet I find it here, here, pride of place, at nice arm-reach eye-line level, where one might regularly go and collect it and put it on your DVD player. Now, I want the person responsible to step forward and explain themselves for this highly erratic and irregular behaviour. Uh, yeah, that, that, that would be mine. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, would you care to hold this DVD in your hands and uh, tell little boys and girls at home what it is? Uh, well, it, it could be several things, to be honest. All of which we're going to uh, we're going to talk about in, in this pre-Christmas episode. And I, I originally, uh, hello, by the way, this is Leo, one of the '80s kids, and I am joined by. I'm Sue. Hello, I. Oh, sorry, of course I was forgetting yeah. to see what ranks me. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry again. <laughs> No, I don't know. But I'm Sue. I'm another one of the 80s kids. <laughs> I am Ian. And for the purposes of the continuing conversation, I'm now going to drop my facade of uh, chagrin. Uh, so proceed. Yes. Originally, I, the topic I wanted to discuss in this pre-Christmas uh, milieu in which we find ourselves oh, uh, is that, yes, exactly, is that this is uh, Christmas being a time for indulgence. I said, why don't we do a show? About indulgences, you know, those things that you know everybody hates them, but you still have a sort of creeping affection for them. Uh, and in well, fact, you know, it, a, a it's, love worth, it's, it's worth exploring the intimate, you know, the, uh, the, the history of that word indulgences. It, you know, it's, it's a sin, but you've shelled out some money and you're forgiven for it. Is this so it's it, not here because his sins are so bad we've had to lock him away. Yeah, something like that. All oh, right, okay, just checking. So, uh, so it's a secret shame uh, that that you 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 privately finance for your own dark, nefarious enjoyment. So, how can you like something that's bad? Because this is this is a hurdle I can't get over. Yeah, because this is the thing. We had this discussion about what well, I wanted to be very particular about. It. It's not something that people generally just ignore. I, for example, have a great love and affection for all these Euro trash thrillers that Luke Besson is churning out on a regular basis at the moment, such as The Transporter, Taken, uh, From Paris with Love, Colombiana, Lockout, all of these cheap kind of things using European crews where, um, you know, as far back as Unleashed with Jet Li, Kiss of the Dragon, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, no, the people don't hate them. They just nothing them. But I really love them, so that's fine. That's me liking something that's a bit obscure that other people don't really understand why, but they're fine. I'm talking about liking something that, generally speaking, is regarded as the red-headed stepchild, that you can't find a good word to be said about them anywhere, and it, it just, you know, because, I mean, you know, and then there's another graduation, because I was thinking about this. Chronicles of Riddick, for example, the second one uh, in the Riddick series, was a big flop at the box office. But since then, some people have come around saying, well, it was a little bit silly, but actually it's got a lot of good stuff in it. And when the new film was coming out, loads of people came out and, you know, came out of the Riddick closet and went, I really like the second one. And then the third one was such a massive, crushing, awful, just like... You've just got loads of these, then. I've just realised how... I've started to clock things in my head, and I'm just going, oh, my God, you're going to be here all day talking about things that you like that other people don't. Oh, well, Leo, this show's yours. (laughs) Well, no, but the point about it is, it's not about... Feet up! It's not necessarily (laughs) about talking about um, those movies in depth. It's about saying, one, why do people hate them so much? And then two, why do I like them necessarily? Or us, because there is a common point. We're going to get to the common point. Because Chronicles of Riddick, people came out, and then the third one came out. And honestly, Chronicles of Riddick is something I really wanted to stand behind, and in the end I couldn't, because it it, it just totally bungled the whole thing uh, by introducing that unnecessary seam of misogyny that I can't ignore. I can't play it another way. It is not good. And that is, that is, you know, for me to say that, that means that, you know, it's like I said, uh, Paul Anderson made an adaptation of The Three Musketeers. And I know that must be a bad movie because Justin's got no time for it, despite all the steampunk spy styling. And I won't even buy a copy. Despite the fact I saw it, I thought it was fine. But then I saw it for £3 in a bargain bin and went, I can't be bothered. I don't really need that in my collection. It's. I've just realised that I suppose I do have a couple there. Do you have a couple? Oh, do tell. What are your shameful secrets? I do have a couple, don't I? I think about it and I go, okay, fair enough. Well, what have you tell got? Me your secrets. Tell me your naughty secrets. Well, I have Millennium. Yes, Millennium. The, the film, not the TV series, no, the film. Yeah, Millennium um, is a film that many people won't know, but those people that do know it... Do almost universally. It's got Chris Christopherson, Cheryl Laddick. Do tell tell people about it. Yeah. Um, it's a film about she comes back from the future to try and kind of take people off aeroplanes to take them back into the, to take them back with her because crashing aeroplanes. Yeah, crashing aeroplanes. Yeah, the aeroplanes that are going to crash and they replace them with like dummies of the bodies um, because her world is dying and they need people to kind of reinvent the future. Basically, they they're actually. You know, there's no people who can breed, basically. So they basically go back and take people off dying aeroplanes that are going to die anyway and replace them with bodies. Um, and she kind of gets caught by Chris Christopherson. And, yeah, there's a whole romantic thing going off between those two, but also this thing about trying to save the future and the world. And time going off paradoxes. There, and time paradoxes and all this kind yes. of stuff going off there. It's 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 one of the incidences of where they, where they go, hmm... We see this period. Of, we can't see this period of time. It's all fuzzy to us. Clearly, some timey wimey is about to happen. Yeah. Well, just go there anyway. See what happens. Yeah. Oh look, yeah. uh, the plot paradox has occurred. 
Yeah, and it also turns out, you know, his whole life has been kind of influenced by what they've been doing and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it's one of those kind of films. But I kind of have an affection for it. I kind of like the effects in it. I like the I like the way the film's set up. I like the way it's done. Um, a lot of people don't care. I would really, really hate it. So I saw I, it in the I, cinema, and I quite liked it. Um, but you forgot about it until I kind well, I didn't of forget about well, you it. kind of forgot it existed until yeah. I went. Oh, I love that film, and I want to buy that film. And then yeah. you went, Oh yeah, I know this film, and, and we had like, to order it from America. Yeah, and I and you know, and I went, I love that film. I want a copy of that film, and I made but you rewatch I, it. I do distinctly like, yeah. remember seeing it in the cinema, thinking that was pretty good fun. I wasn't really expecting that coming home and reading a film review. That eviscerated it. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, I can't actually disagree with this review. If this guy hated this film for the reasons that he stated, I can't actually quibble yeah. with that. But I liked it, so yeah. he can get over it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, so that, yeah, that's where we're at with that. Um, the other one I can think of off the top of my head is Lady in the Water. Oh, yeah, yeah. You I like really like Lady in the Water and everybody hates it. And everybody, everybody does. Everybody hates Shanam and Am and Am Ding Dong. And I absolutely adore that film, so I yeah, don't care. There we go. So, Ian, you, have you seen Lady in the Water, Ian? Yes. And what I have you? seen Lady. Well, I saw for free on an airplane, so it wasn't a particularly offensive piece of entertainment at the time because it was helping pass uh, the sheer boredom of it. Um, I think, you know, standout things to me about it are the fact that M. Night Shyamalan casts himself as a frustrated writer who's going to write something so profound it inspires and changes the world. But first, he must be humiliated and destroyed. And also he puts in there a film critic uh, uh, who is utterly cynical and utterly shattering of the fourth wall, who is particularly butchered by the monster with its rather inappropriate name. Um uh, it was well, he wanted to do a modern day fairy tale. I suppose it is a modern day fairy tale. It's quite interesting that that the people around her, the the, the lady in the water, um, do fil- fulfil these roles that she has as the healer and the protector. And the reveal of the, of the protector at the end is, I thought, was all right. It, it's not the most offensive film he's ever made. I'm not surprised it didn't make any money though. Okay, so why are you not surprised it didn't make any money? Uh, it was an M. Night Shyamalan film. I don't, I don't right. think it's what people expected from him. Okay. Um, so did you like the movie? I have not seen it again since, and I've had no desire to go see it again. I probably will never see it again. Uh, but for just passing the time when you're stuck in a seat in a room full of strangers, I suppose it's perfectly acceptable. Well, there we go. And there you differ from everybody else, because they say, God, I wish I could have that two hours of my life back. Um, Sue really loves it. I enjoyed it. Uh, we haven't watched it again since. We've got a copy of it, yeah, but we've never watched it. Yeah, we came it. home from that. I remember coming home from that cinema with you and having a massive argument with you about all of that film, and then you kind of coming over to my side a little bit more about why you should like that film. So that's why we've got a copy of it. And yeah, we should watch it again. But I like that film, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that highlights for me is that uh, at some point, you know, uh, uh, another time, uh, maybe Blue Monday next year, uh, we should probably do the reverse of this topic, which is films everyone else seems to love that you hate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but we'll... we'll Gloucester, richer, richer, richer seem to mine. I think there. Yes. Well, uh, so I mean, Lady in the Water. 
I don't have any particular problems with it as such. No, I mean, it's not like I hate it. I think M. Night Shyamalan has done far worse. He has a lot of... They obviously put a lot of thought and passion into all the mythology. I mean, if if, they put, if the writer puts a lot of thought into the mythology of a fantasy setup, I'm always willing to go with them. Ah, well, to, there to, it is. So if it was a sloppily thought out kind of a thing, I think it would be much more, much more outraged by it. As it was, it seemed like quite a personal little thing that he did there. So is that so does that does that kind of cover you off? Have you got any more? Well, as he just said, maybe I should add in Star Trek Voyager because I am a massive Voyager fan, and it is one of the it was the one of the least favorite series of Star Trek until they made another one. <laughs> I've heard, yeah. I've heard, shall I've heard, not speak of. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard many. I've heard many uh, valid criticisms of Voyager. Yeah. Now, the thing about it is, I've got no objection to Voyager. I find it quite relaxing to watch a bit of I Voyager. Ju- I just find Voyager quite fun. Yes. And I, I, think- I like, but I like Star Trek in general. I don't get me wrong, I like all the Star Trek. I like Generations. I like, you know, I like Star Trek in general, but I find Voyager fun. Yeah. I think that the, the big criticism of Voyager from, uh, many people is that they kind of have this interesting premise which they kind of toss out of the window. They don't really do anything with that premise. In fact, they have lot. You know, in the in someone pointed out in the second episode, they say they've only got eight photon torpedoes left, and then they merrily spray infinite photon torpedoes yeah. at everything throughout the rest of the next seven because they don't. They suddenly photon torpedo. We just found this big box full of photon torpedoes. We didn't even know we had, but we're not going to mention it on camera and all that kind of stuff. And it is inconsistent and it's silly and it is, you know, and, and, but the thing about it is as someone who's not a massive Star Trek fan at all, me personally, I'm perfectly happy to watch a, an episode of Star Trek. Well, um, it is very much, it's a, very, it's a series very much inside its own bubble. And if you're inside the bubble, I suppose it's fine. Certain twee things about it irk me. An, an example of this would be, you, you had that, a quite good, well, a, a quite good holodeck story about Tom Paris's pulp 50s uh, sci-fi yeah. adventures that he was into. Uh, but when he built the Delta Flyer, he has his console mapped out to be dials and switches, just like from that 50s program that he liked. But now that was like, Son, you're part of a of what is ostensibly a military operation with low resources. This is a bit silly. In a crisis situation, and Harry Kim has to take over your console, everyone's a bit stuffed, aren't they now? Well done there. Well done. <laughs> um, but uh, that aside, I, I don't know. It's Janeway is always right. Even if she takes a completely contradictory position to the one she had the week before, she's always 100% validated. I think that, that irks me a little bit, not hugely... But the inconsistency is something that pops up from time to time. Uh, so I, I find it a bit morally flex, you know, there's this strong moral leader we have in Janeway. And yet I find her morals somewhat flexible. And whenever she's flexible, well, she's she's usually universal. The only time she they, they kind of upturn that one is that season finale where she turns out that actually allying with the Borg was a really bad idea, which had a huge... Who saw, the, who saw this coming? A huge kind of consequences for the yeah, whole goddamn knew? quadrant. Yeah, who knew the Borg uh, were? But that, that, is the, that is the only time where, you know, because Katie Janeway does, go, does kind of go off on one and does some genuinely crazy things. 
Um, and she, she, she gets away with it, basically. To me, though, that's all kind of mitigated by, you've got the Doctor, who's, Robert Picardo's amazing in that series. He is absolutely brilliant in that series. Almost certainly the breakout character. You've got Butt Monkey Kim. Harry Kim is just basically the Butt Monkey. He is constantly abused throughout that series. Yeah, something bad's going to happen to someone. I can guarantee you Harry Harry Kim's going to get in the neck. Um, You know, there's characters in there. Neelix is quite an interesting character. There's characters in there who can kind of make it. Chakotay's quite an interesting character. Oh, no, no, I'd have to disagree with you there. Chakotay (laughs) had the power to be an interesting character. But his morals are are, are set. Compared to Janeway's, his morals are set. He has an ethical Uh, framework. Yeah, you can't. Paris is a great character. Paris is a good character. You know what I mean? So you've got. They had fun with And the play with Paris and Kim is a great character character play you know what I mean and yeah. I think seven and I nine think... when they brought her on board uh, yes I know the whole I mean she's always said it yes it's a corset people get over it you know what I mean but at the end of the day you know she was there as a bit of eye candy but she's also quite an interesting character and she played it so well, straight more episodes yeah. about her than any other apart from the doctor possibly any other character yeah, yeah. I think ultimately with things like Star Trek if you like the crew and want just to hang around with them, because that was the thing about Next Gen, I really wanted to be kind of in there with those yeah. guys. Uh, then, then you're kind of, you're, you're one of them. I, I never wanted to be in Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, it, yes, I wanted to erase Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, Voyager, I, I want, it's a series that definitely had some very good Star Trek franchise episodes in there. So it, it was definitely not seven years wasted. Yeah. By any stretch of imagination, I think I think the Borg were somewhat depowered by the end of it all, um, and and Janeway was a bit of a sticking point for me. But even, I never you could found hang Harry out with the rest of the crew quite happily. You could go. Uh, Neelix, Neelix in small doses is fine. Yeah, you could go uh, and play pool though with Paris and have a good time. You could go and talk about spirituality with Chakotay and have a good time. You could go. You know what I'm saying? And it's like. You know, you've got somebody there to fill a role wherever you wanted to go with that, yeah. and that's that's why I like that crew. Yeah. I did like that crew. But I do, th- I I think this fits in, entirely into that thing. You mm. understand why people don't like it. Yeah, those people. That yeah, well, yeah, I think I the, the, com- the comment was I by, by a certain series, the fans were going, "Well, just 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 get them home," because they might also just be having adventures in the Alpha Quadrant, really. Because yeah. uh, the fact they're cut off from Starfleet is not something of any particular consequence. Um, so the d- dwindling crew members, dwindling shuttles, dwindling resources, and having to make very hard moral decisions doesn't really come into it. It's always about, we must stick to our principles. In fact, they do do the episode with the Equinox. They find another Federation starship out there, which yeah. has had the roughest time possible. A, a traumatized crew that has had to make compromises, like, well, how many aliens are we prepared to kill to get home? Uh, and, you know, and Janeway just sits in godlike judgment upon them. She, who forged an ally alliance with the Borg, sits yeah. in judgment. No, off you. I'm putting you all in lock, under lock and key. You will face judgment for what you've done when we get back to Earth. Yeah. And your ship shall be scrapped. Can you, can you blame this captain for basically going, right, I'm getting my crew. I'm getting my ship. Stuff you, Voyager. I'm off. Yeah. I hope you get crippled. Yeah. It's exactly okay. what Jamie would have done if the situations were reversed. Yeah. And she would have been right, yeah, because the because the writers say so. So aside from that kind of, uh, 
aside from the lack of consequences, it, it was it was fine as a because essentially it was Star Trek: Next Generation continued. Yeah. Because the, the contracts all expired on the on the first set of actors, they couldn't rehire them all. So let's just have a new crew. Off we go again. Seven more years of Next Gen with our with our time, uh, wibbly wobbly things and our holodeck malfunctions, continuing all the trends of what Next Gen started, basically. Yeah, I mean, I like Next Gen as well, so, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, I prefer one Star Trek over the other. I just like, I like Voyager's characters. I do like Voyager. Um, as I said, there is one that shall not be named that I've got to say I don't well, like. I've always felt it's, it's somewhat ironic in this new cinema Star Trek universe, which has altered the timeline. Original Star Trek, Next Gen, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, erased. However, Star Trek Enterprise is still, still a, a canon prequel series to the, to the films. Yeah, which I find yeah, strangely appropriate to see ever. where the films are going. Well, apparently it picked up, but I'm not going to go through it to find out. Oh, I, was, um, I, just, I was just fed up of all the I mean, on, showers on, they took on, together. On which topic, if we're going to start with a television indulgence, thing, I'm currently totally digging Stargate Atlantis. Yeah. Now, Stargate, in the first place, the ten series of Stargate tell you that people like Stargate. But you, you, won't, you won't find many of them. They, but I, mean, I, I want to go for things that people really hate, so I'm going to be brief on this. And that's why I mentioned Atlantis over Stargate, because Stargate seems a bit tedious. Atlantis, I think, was people kind of really took against that. I think, um, I think there was one other that they took against a bit more. Which was what? The one with Robert Carlyle. No, no, no. That's exactly the reverse situation. Well, they cancelled that after two. Yeah, so. but that, yeah, they, the studio did. But that was one of those Firefly situations yeah. where by the time we were like, this is the best Stargate ever, OMG, which yeah. makes me think I will probably not Hate like it. Yeah. Because Atlantis, to me, is the best Stargate series now. I've gone totally from after a really shaky start, of which the first few episodes are just not very interesting. By the time you get to the end, by the time you get into the end, and it does have its problems as it goes through, but, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about Atlantis is that there's a character in it, um, uh, Dr. Uh, oh, his name's popped out of my head now, the Scottish Doctor. Oh, David Tennant, surely. No. Beckett, Dr. Carson Beckett, yeah, um, played by a Scottish guy called Paul Guilfoyle, and... The first thing that I noted about this guy's portrayal of a doctor was for the first time, and I'd never really noticed the lack before, but I have never, ever watched a programme in which I think, no, that guy's a doctor. I've never seen a doctor on a television show where I, I don't think they're not a doctor. I'm not like, you're an actor, liar, like this. I'm like, but for the first time, I'm like, wow, I'd, like, I'd quite like this guy to be my GP. He seems like a very lovely man who just wants to help everyone. And I think it really helped the writers write him a moral through work, that he never wanted to hurt anyone. He always wanted to heal. He always wanted to be a doctor, and he was a brilliant doctor, and that's why they'd taken him to another galaxy to, to do this incredibly dangerous expedition, which he wasn't entirely happy about. Oh, that and the fact that he had the what the ancient gene. So he got he, he basically got shafted on this one. He wanted to stay in the bloody Hebrides and have a little GP's practice. But no, because he had this particular, you know, Gene, and because he was particularly good at being a doctor, they sent him to the Pegasus Galaxy. And so that was his character's kind of thing. But it really worked. I mean, for the first time, it was a doctor who didn't just tell other people 
as a plot function, what was wrong? Or, I mean, you know, we talked about the Doctor in, in, in Voyager, but that was a very different oh, proposition. Oh, he was a sarcastic well, he was, it, well, he was, was great. <laughs> but, well, he was kind of the, the Vulcan data sort of... He, ha- he was the one who was learning to be yeah. human yeah. because of his p- position. And that was kind of the thing. And he could also heal people and tell people what was wrong with him. Yeah. But he wasn't... You know, he was a doctor people might recognise as not being the world's best doctor. But this is a guy who portrayed a doctor that everybody you like, you would trust this guy. If you got injured on Atlantis, you'd be like, it'll be all right. Dr. Beckett will sort me out. And I knew that he didn't go all the way to the end. Um, And yet, despite the fact I did know this, because it's a matter of historical record, when he did go, two things happened. One. I didn't. I didn't actually know that the episode where he went was that episode, so it caught me by surprise. Even though, and um, and not only that, but the rest of that episode is kind of one of their wacky comedy episodes. Yeah. It's like they they do a kind of uh, seeing the same incident from a number of different positions thing, and they have to work out a mystery from all of the team's different perspectives. Um, which has ruined it now for anyone who hasn't seen it, because as soon as that episode comes out, oh, this is that one, is it? Um, but then when he actually did die, I was like, oh, no. For the first time ever, I've never really cared. I've always seen it as an interesting plot point as to whether someone died or not in a television series. But I've never been like, this series will actually be the worse off for the lack of that character being in it. Um, and he's not even like a main character. I mean, he did get into the credit sequence eventually, but and that was so. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the that's what I would note about it. And yet, at the same time, Atlantis universally seen as I think. I mean, the sets are pretty terrible. I will have to concede that. But is that really a reason to hate? You know, the rest of it. I think everybody else does a great job. Jason Momoa is a big surprise. I quite liked him as Conan which is an, another film everybody hates that I quite like. You know, but I thought he th- I think he's actually really good in the four seasons that he's in. I think he's he's unfairly dismissed in his future career afterwards because I thought he was pretty good. But um yeah, totally. I mean, for something to have that much effect, everybody hates it. Don't know why. I can't identify it. You haven't seen it probably, in, have you? No, no. Stargate is perhaps the great missing love of my life. It's a series I prob- I would have been absolutely into, but I was shafted because of Sky One. It was on Channel 4, and they really buried that. that you had to be an archaeologist to find Stargate in your schedules. Well, Forget Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, well, Atlantis uh, is on UK uh, Netflix, which probably means the rights translate across. So... If you, when Netflix drops in Australia, you'll have an opportunity, and I totally recommend it. But maybe I shouldn't because everybody. I, I can't. I mean, Do I have I, to watch Stargate before watch Atlantis? Then no, ah. Atlantis is is it it it, it kind of crosses over a bit, but not in any significant no, it's, way. It's a thing in its own right. It's a definitely a thing in its own right. Um, I mean, technically, three of the seasons of Stargate overlap with Stargate Atlantis, but. Um, and there are little bits where they mentioned each other, but it's not significant, is it? No. Uh, another another series in which the person in charge was supposed to be a woman, and and I think in both Voyager and Atlantis's case, 
The writers didn't know what to do with a female leader. That's why, that's why Janeway is mm. so annoying in the end. It's because, oh, we can't have a woman do something bad. That's sexist. Or make a mistake. Everybody will think well, she's being she, a silly she, she woman. She does. She makes a lot of very questionable decisions, and these are flagged to her at the time. And my goodness, don't don't tell Janeway she's wrong because she will take you. She will right. That's it. You're stripped of your post. Off to your quarters with you. Um, but but there's no follow through. There's no, no kind no, of. No, I mean I totally agree with you, but I think that the reason for that is because the writers are like, she cannot be proven to be wrong because then they'll say we're being sexist. Yeah, because Kirk was. Never it's wrong. like positive discrimination. And and in a similarly way, the, the initial leader of the Atlantis expedition, uh, civilian doctor. I think they get it right when they swap the leader to Sam Carter. Well, they they kind of do because Sam Carter's a little bit well, more it's because laid Amanda, back and well, got a bit more. Well, character-wise, yes, but I think the more important fact. Amanda Tapping. Yeah, yeah, we happen to know that Amanda Tapping by that stage is important enough to have exerted creative control because she instantly goes off to make sanctuary with yeah. some of her old Stargate chums. Yeah. So she got to say, well, no, she wouldn't do this, or no, it's fine, you can make me wrong about that, or it's an interesting counterpoint. So, yes, Tori Higginson did not have that ability to yeah. say, you know, when they decided to make her more vulnerable, they made her insane and then turned her into a robot. Yeah. Spoilers. Uh, but... um uh, although not really, because if you see it, you go, well, that's not really what happened, is it? But yeah, but the point is um, that they they couldn't handle, a, 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 you know, and I think that she as an actress didn't want to be, Amanda Tapping clearly wants to be involved in the creative yeah. side, whereas I don't, I think she was an actress who just wanted to do some acting and the writing team couldn't handle it. They couldn't make a female lead, whereas... When Amanda Tapping came in, she went, no, I've got some ideas about how to make this better. That's the thing, Amanda Tapping's quite good at, at taking control and going, no, this is how a woman does act. And yeah. That, thank God for Amanda Tapping in sci-fi series is for that one. Yeah, I mean, it's such she a... She does help. It's <laughs> such a shame that Sanctuary went so far off the boil because I thought she was really good in that and it's quite obvious that she made that yeah. character yeah. And she it, for herself. Yeah. And no, I, there's no disrespect to that. Did you see any of Sanctuary, Ian? Oh, God, no. It looks like I've barely seen Stargate, so anything that's a derivative of Stargate no, no, Sanctuary is even further off. Sanctuary is only associated with Stargate in that... Amanda it, Tapping took a load of people that turned up in some oh, right. Stargate uh, and no. run off. And, and the, the, main char- the main writer and creator of the show was Damien Kindler, who wrote a lot of Stargate, the series. So it's a completely separate series that was uh, started... It was a sci-fi series that started in what, 2008 or something, and it ran for four seasons. And the first, I would give it leeway for the first three series, although the third one gets a little bit iffy. And then in the fourth, it just, there there was a whole row of sharks in a sharknado, (laughs) and it managed to jump them all. (laughs) Well, you know, I think sci-fi series, is a fourth series is is kind of of lucky. I mean, we... uh, because so many sci-fi series just kind of fall and stumble and disappear into nowhere. That four series is kind of grand, so well done. Yeah, frankly. I mean, the problem is that they did the obviously the mandatory thing of having a cliffhanger on the end of every season. So you can't uh, be a sanctuary, you can't be a sanctuary completist without having the lot and sitting through those last thirteen episodes to get to the proper ending is such a chore. 
So, yeah. But anyway, what else do you like then? So let's move away from television now and, and move into the... This is what I really want to get into because these things are really hated. Um, this is a point of common ground, I think, among all three of us. None of us mind the Underworld franchise, although most people in the world would disagree with us on this point. Okay. I know you I like think it's. I think it's also because, as well as an 80s kid, I'm also a bit of a 90s kid. And I appreciate that Underworld came out in 2003. But there's something about the angst I had in the 90s that, that is, is in Underworld for me. I appreciate, even seeing at the time, I thought, you know, character-wise, this is fairly shallow. In fact, even plot-wise, this is fairly shallow. But, uh, but, but um, it, it, I don't know, vampires versus werewolves and just kind of a bit of angst in the air. And some and some nice you know shootouts going on. It's all at night and vampires and werewolves, uh, and yeah, it just it just kind of stuck in my memory. And it's not a it's not a film franchise I've gone out and bought, but I made a point of seeing the sequel. And even though I didn't see Rise of the Lycans, I made a point of going out and seeing Awakening, as in like yes, here's this this, this thing I I know quite a lot about. I don't want to see where they're going to go with it now because that, that underworld evolution I thought pretty much wrapped everything up, guys. Seriously, where are you going to go with it after that? Well, I think there's a double there's a double whammy of of, of weirdness in that uh, layer, um, which I shall uh, possibly get into shortly. First of all, do we understand why people don't like underworld? Uh. It takes itself very seriously. Uh, I don't think there's very much humour in there at all. No. So it's very po-faced about its vampire mythology. Uh, and I suppose I'm kind of glad of that. Because there's surprisingly few vampire films that, that don't, you know, do that. Uh, just go the whole hog. It's, it's very derivative in terms of how the vampires are presented, living in their mansion, on lounges, with all their corsets and leathers and long flowing hair and being all beautiful. And the werewolves are so like whales with their leather jackets and they're rugged and, you know, more feral. Um, so it, I suppose stylistically it's quite derivative. It's very Shakespearean. It's very mm. play-like. And I think that either appeals to you or it doesn't. I think there is a point, and this is where people instantly left the, the building with this, that we are used to the reason that something has ropey dialogue or cardboardy characters being because the writer didn't care about what they were doing and they were just trying, it's an expert, you know, people instantly who weren't looking for anything further walked into that movie and we're like, well, this is obviously just them trying to exploit a current trend. But I mean, all the leather-clad stuff and all the gunplay is Matrix derivative. Yeah. But I'm on about it's the way that you know the whole, the whole story. Yeah, yeah. The, the story st- itself is very Shakespearean. Yeah, it and is. I think you either get it or you don't. And the it's, reason- it's also very comic book. It, you, you, you could, you know, if, if suddenly it was like it was all based on a comic book series, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I know it's not. It's, but it's, it's, it has that no, feel of a comic book. But it is incredibly exposition heavy, and this is why, and another reason which makes it, as you put it, Shakespearean. Yeah. Obviously, a Shakespearean play, it, it relies on its exposition, and 
these days, you know, they all told exposition into ammunition, show, don't tell. And Underworld, the first movie, is very much a case of sort of, well, it's where that kind of collides. They're trying to show you, not tell you, this incredibly complicated backstory that they've worked out. But at the same time, there's so much of the backstory that they can't help but dump huge tracts of expository dialogue into the middle of all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. It, it's surprising they didn't start with a more simpler film for the first one, sort of Matrix style, well, r- before Rise going of, down the rabbit hole, yes, so to speak. Rise of the Lycans would have been the place to start, and it really is. It's not really a prequel in the sense that it expands upon things you've seen before. All it does is it's just basically the first movie. It's, Rise of the, the Lycans. It's, it's the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's the beginning. So it's like you've come into Underworld through no fault of your own. In the middle in, of it. <laughs> at, the, at the second movie. Yeah. Um, and in fact, many of the things that characters say and do are informed directly and only really make total sense. If you've seen a movie, they won't make for six years. That's the crazy bit. I, think, like... I think also, Underworld ended with enough characters still around and in opposition to each other that you could immediately, I was immediately thinking about the sequel in my head. That was probably a pretty big thing, I think, because it was like a few years when they, oh, what's, what's Craven's next move going to be? Oh, this is interesting. So when Marcus is going to come in, oh, it's so interesting. And then that like, Craven dies almost immediately. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, okay. We're going in a different direction. Carry on. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the weird things about it is the sheer number. I mean, it's Shakespearean as well. Because it has every respected British actor ever makes an appearance at some point in all. Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen. Yeah, a big man love for Michael Sheen. Yeah, Leo Leo has a massive man love for Michael Sheen. Yeah. And we're hoping when we move to Wales, he can stalk Michael Sheen more regularly. So, sorry, Michael. Run for Get get him on the podcast, man, you know? Uh, Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, the whole. Right. (laughs) <laughs> Michael Sheen was obviously one of the best things about the first movie, and he really was because people made a note of it. Um, and at the time, in 2003, he wasn't well-known. This was about, And what's really nice about it is that he does not disavow the Underworld franchise. He said it was great fun. Even though now he's the man who is chameleonic, he does all these respected, worthy, you know, Frost Nixon and being Tony Blair and being, you know, all these people and being this hugely respected actor for all these things. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I did that because I needed the money. He goes, are you kidding? I got to wear leather trousers and be a werewolf. It's fantastic! <laughs> you know, so, and that is, you know, that is the source of it all. He, well, at the moment, he, with the Twilight thing as well, he's got to be the king of the lichens and the king of the yes, vampires. he is both the king of the werewolves and the king of the vampires. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I mean, in fact, yes. Well, well, that's the thing. I, you see him as, as leader of the Venturi Twilight, and from what I've seen him, he's just, he's just loving eating the scenery with his with his delicious little part. Well, oh no, my! Of course, he's the best thing about Tron Legacy, being the crazy program. When he does get to do genre stuff like that, he laps it up, and so that makes his performance. I mean, the fact is, he's by far the most interesting character in the original Underworld, um, and the problem is that that means that you know, if you've seen Revenge of the Light, uh, Rise of the Lycans and then you watch Underworld directly afterwards. From his first line, I mean, he obviously, the thing is, Wiseman and Grievew, who made the, the film, wrote the film together, um, they came up with this whole world book for the world of the vampires and the werewolves. And 
this is the problem, you see. There's a thing in writing called, you know, the world builder's romance, where you get far too involved in... And in fact, technically, Lord of the Rings should be a victim of this, because it is. But people still seem to respond to it. You know, J.R. Tolkien was not writing these books for them to become what they've become. He was writing them because he was just basically in a big love affair with Middle Earth. Um, he, it was all world building to him. And for some people, the reason people like reading his world building notes. Um, but yeah, under, what is under the surface of Underworld is the fact that it is this big world that they created in this great detail and then unfortunately they didn't have the skill to tell someone a simple story within that big world and that's where it fell over and this is why people find it terrible but if you listen to the dialogue you put it together um i wanted to do some sort of underworld sort of role-playing games which never came about but i started to do notes uh, from the movies, and I'm like, this is incredible. You can derive the entire history of the vampire werewolf war and how they even came to be from dialogue in all the movies. You can place, yeah. you know, 800 years of history from all of that dialogue. And they've managed to cram that into four and a half hours with and have action sequences and guns and leather and rock music and all of this other stuff. It's no wonder it's a mess. Because there's too much stuff bursting at the seams with stuff that you have to be quite attentive to pick up on. So it's actually pretty dense. And yet at the same time, it has all this terrible expository cardboard dialogue. So, yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a franchise. I think, yeah, I think I'd be both like to immerse ourselves in these fantasy worlds. I think evolution was just kind of, here it all is, guys. And, you know, maybe I would... Because I wasn't looking for an emotional way, you know, it was like kind of like, oh well, here we have this this backstory I can stuff in my head, and I can I can theorize about what's going to happen in the next film, and um, you know, I suppose that that buzzes my fanboy self. If I'm if if I might change the subject only slightly uh, uh, on the subject of talking about vampires and overcomplicated story plots and backgrounds. Uh, I famously said I can't think of anything that I, that I know is not popular for variously uh, well-observed reasons, but I still love anyway. This conversation has reminded me that there is one, and it's not a film, it's not a TV series, it's a video game series. Oh. I'm talking about Legacy of Cain, which I was insane about. Legacy of Cain games. Give <coughs> me cough for just a second. Legacy of Cain series. It is, quite honestly, the most contrived, convoluted, self-referential story I have ever known in the history of video gaming. Oh, uh, because you haven't played the Assassin's Creed series, but hey. <laughs> this is probably true. Um, but, you know, uh, let's, story aside, let's look at the gameplay. It's always, it, in, in virtually every iteration, it is clunky, uh, sometimes buggy, often repetitive, a lot of walking, and and you and you know what? It's like most Christians people love, love these games. I'm, I'm just going to have to take on the chin. It's probably true. At the same time, when I played Soul Reaver, I I just you know I suddenly became a gothic vampire convert. It's what got me in there. I was once a proud lieutenant of the vampire god Cain, 
but I was cast down because I dared grow wings before he did. And I... now I was raised as a ghoul from the abyss to hunt down my, my former brethren one by one. I shall hunt down each of my brothers, and then, Cain, I shall come for you and eat your soul. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a game that famously has the last third hacksawed off. So you don't get your, your eldest brother, you don't get Cain, they're off somewhere else, and they completely change direction the second game and start mythologizing. Well, it's not the game, Soul Reaver was the second game. Legacy of Cain Blood Omen was the first game where you played Cain as a vampire. So that was the huge mythology that I suddenly discovered when I went back and bought the first game. I was like, oh, this world is bigger than I thought. And then Soul Reaver 2 comes out and it, and it further expands on that mythology. And oh my goodness, there's two more games that come after that. And, and it's all this great spinning, whirly thing of, of timelines going back and forth and history changing and destiny and fate and giant multi, uh, multi-eyed squids that live underground. I must Continue. admit, I have to agree with him on that one. I remember playing Soul Reaver and thinking it was amazeballs. Yeah, but the, th- right, the thing about <laughs> that is, I think that probably comes under the thing. Do people hate the yeah. Legacy of Cain series, the Soul Reaver series? I thought they just... Other people hate it. I, I played Soul Reaver 2, and I was like, okay, I get what you're going for, guys, because I've, I've played Soul Reaver, and I loved it enough. I went and bought Legacy of Cain, which is a very old, clunky hack-and-slash RPG. And that had quite a, a full world for you to explore through. Soul Reaver's pretty much a kind of I'm coming to get you Kane story. And Soul Reaver 2, it plays like the Soul Reaver fan fiction I'd been reading for years, you know, because everyone wanted to know how the story ended. Uh, and and it, it read like fan fiction. It was so self-referential. It was derivative of itself. And in it, there's no boss fights. It's just you're literally hacking your way and puzzle-solving your way from one very long, unskippable cutscene to another in Soul Reaver 2. I'm like, I dig this, guys, but I have absolutely no idea how you're going to make any money out of this. <laughs> Sadly yes, prophetic, as it fizzled out after the fifth game. What, what, you, you've got more to this? I was going to say, speaking of another vampire thing, that how do you lot feel about Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned? Because they're two things I actually like, especially well, Queen of the Damned. Yeah, which Interview with the very... Vampire was liked, Yeah, but Queen of the Damned I prefer, and actually that was one that wasn't yes, so liked. Oh, everyone hated that. I don't, I don't mind it at all. Yeah, I like, you see Queen of the Damned? I like Queen of the Damned. I haven't seen Queen of the Damned. I've you seen, haven't seen Interview with the Vampire. And I thought Interview with Vampire was fine, absolutely fine. I've watched right. it several times. I would say that the problem for people with Queen of the Damned, and it's a good job we're going down this route now because this is where we're, we're probably going to... Queen of the Damned, I think, is hated because it brings to the surface all that is ridiculous about Anne Rice's yeah. vampire series. But it's there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, that's what it's like. You either love it for what it is or accept the fact that you, you've lionised and over-mythologised something that is just basically a piece of vampire frippery. Yeah. I think Anne Rice herself took it too seriously. Yeah. She thought it was more than it was. A vampire book is at the end of their vampire book, book and yeah. there shouldn't be any shame in that. Trying to elevate it into this canon of great literature because you're ashamed of writing... You know, I don't like genre writers who are ashamed of writing genre fiction. Writing genre fiction is hard. It doesn't matter what kind you're writing, yeah. it's still hard because if it was easy, then... Every time I go to the bookshop, I'd be spoiled for sure. People would be reading more. Yeah. The fact is that it's very hard to get genre correct and, like, make people involved in it. And 
if you're ashamed of it as well, how are you going to get further yeah. along? Literature seems to be the great white whale for writers because it's something that people don't have to like for it still to be great. It's like, oh, I didn't like that book. It was rubbish. It was boring. Yes, but it is great literature, so you pass. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's that's a cop out yeah. to me. If some if if you can't stop people reading something, then that must be okay. But if people are if you can't have a get out of jail free that because it is literature, therefore you know, that's what gets me about Booker Prize winners. Yeah. It's like nobody reads your book, but apparently it wins a badge. Yeah. It's like yeah, okay, forget it. Right. So anyway, but that moving on from that, uh, I want to have a now we're going to start. I, mean, I think I might start losing people at this stage. Well, we. You and me soon yeah. might start losing him at this stage. I'm not sure. Resident Evil, we have to talk about. In fact, we may as well. It's almost like the end of the show is going to be like this little thing about this one director, formerly Paul Anderson, now Paul W.S. Anderson for reasons of, you know, SAG or whatever it is, like the, the, the um, American Film Register, because there already is a Paul Anderson, yeah. so they need a different name for the other one. Uh, maker of Mortal Kombat... Event Horizon, and from there on, everybody else agrees he's a blight upon the face. He is like the B movie Michael Bay. People, and I, I'm not a big Michael Bay fan, but honestly, Paul Anderson just really get nobody wants to know about Paul Anderson. Nobody except me. I quite like. And I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, Um. So we're going to come on to the one that I think is going to be a real sticking point right at the end. But quickly, Resident Evil. Ian, you've watched the first two movies? Yeah, uh, they were fine. I, I mean, I think I would have watched the other ones if I'd stayed in the UK, because you would almost certainly have put them on during a pizza evening or something like that, going, you must watch these things. Mm-hmm. And I would have gone, yeah, that, that's that's perfectly acceptable entertainment to watch whilst eating my Oh, no, honestly, with the rest of the discussion that you've had in this, uh, in this podcast, I can guarantee... It doesn't really start to become apparent what they've they've hit on until the third one. Yeah. But really, it's a massive saga. I mean, in the first, the first, the second one carries on from the first one kind of by accident. It just kind of does. And the first one is very disappointing. I didn't like the first one when I went to see it when it was first out, along with everybody else. Because it wasn't, it was like the prequel to Resident Evil that nobody asked for. And therefore it just, just, it didn't really feel very Resident Evil-y. The second one blew my socks off because suddenly they go from the prequel into something which is basically a kind of checklist of all the things, the video game. Now I understand, and I couldn't understand why video game fans still didn't like it at that stage. I just figured that people just didn't like it, you know. Um, and that, that people really, the number of people that liked the video game that probably thought the second one was fine weren't enough to turn the tide. Actually, as it turns out, that fans of the video game hate it because Alice is a made-up character for the movies and they resent the fact that all the other characters are kind of like a, a checklist of references around Alice's story, which, as I'm not really that bothered about the video games either way, doesn't bother me at all. Um, and I think Alice is a great female action lead. So. I think she's an amazing female action lead. I mean, the lead, fact that so, people moan yeah. about the fact that nobody else is allowed to be competent at anything because Alice has got to be good at everything. It's like, um, 
actually there are other people that are competent. Well, Unfortunately, they're always the women. Get over it, men. Well, it's not only that. It's not only that. It's the fact that Alice is the main character and the fact that the other characters are kind of referenced and name-checked rather than being allowed to be given centre stage, but that's fine. That's the structure of a movie. And it doesn't matter that the others are slightly less boss than the main character, because action movies with male leads do that all the time. You know, you know, Riddick is like a temple to the man who is competent above everybody else. So why is it that when Mila Jovovich does it, everybody's like, ooh, that's rubbish, it's not... Me. That says, because I mean, it's a woman. yeah, that says it's to me that it's sexism. But yeah, from the third movie on, they are deliberately forging a saga. They are deliberately every one next episode follows on from the previous one, and the events are all one long, massive narrative. But at the same time, they try and make every film its own beast. Like the first one is like a military zombies aliens ripoff. The second one is your urban assault sort of boss fight video game urban zombie reference action movie. The third one kind of goes a bit Mad Max. The fourth one is a bit more sci-fi with a prison breakout. And then the fifth one is just bonkers. Um, And then they're going to finish it off. They've confirmed they're going to do another one next year and that's going to be the end of it. And I've loved the whole thing. But nobody else does by the, the sound of it. And Ian, you're not really best placed to comment. So... Yeah, Justin. Well, I, 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 I do have some observations to make on, on perhaps why they hate the fans of the video game series. Because uh, it's not unprecedented, and it, it, it has to do kind of with, like, I hate to use the term, Mary Susan fan fiction, where you take an established universe and you insert your own new character who just totally hijacks the story from all the established characters which are now reduced to backgrounds. And I think for a fan of the, of the, of the game series, fools that they are, um, I can understand why they might feel put out about that. Who's she? Who's this? Why she's, is all about her? Why are all my characters pushed to the peripheries? Um, so I can, I can, I, I have observed this phenomenon of resentment before. Yeah, I think that that's somewhat unfair, um, in the Resident Evil universe. Because well, it's such more, it's such its own thing now, anyway. Because one, yeah, because one Resident Evil game franchise doesn't have this great narrative. I mean, the, the Resident Evil games don't have a great narrative at all in the slightest. But then the second part about that that I would say is that that Mary Sue characters are usually immune from getting things wrong or criticism or having a hard time. Whereas really they are just making an action movie franchise where the Alice character is basically analogous to Ripley, an alien franchise. Well, what were you going to say about Justin anyway? Justin loves those movies too with us. He thinks it's awesome that yeah. it does this thing and it yeah. evolves. And it and he goes, so maybe another discussion about that particular franchise can come up when we've got more so time and Justin involved. Yeah. But um, on this last point, and this is where, you know, I feel... Do you think Dune, though, has the same problem? Dune? Why Why would you say that? Do you know, people regard Dune as an interesting mistake. They don't hate it, per se. Some people do, but some people hate everything. Yeah, so I was just asking. This is where we're going to hit the point where I, I feel as if I am making some kind of a, an admittance or confession, even though I am not ashamed of this at all. And you're going to join me in this, aren't you, Sue? Whereas, Ian, you will be able to tell me exactly why people hate this, because you do as well. 
I don't have any objection to the two Alien versus Predator movies that they I made. I think they're fun. great fun. Sue thinks they're great fun. I think they're great fun. Ian, why do you hate these movies? Uh, hate is uh, too strong a word. I do, in fact, own both of them. Perhaps <laughs> obligatory oh. because I do own Alien and Predator. Oh, okay. Fair uh, well, I did. I, I did. I had not seen Alien Re- versus Alien Requiem until I bought it. Uh, I, wonder if, I wonder if I'd seen it beforehand. Whether that would have made me stay my hand, I don't know. I think. Uh, I think for the fan, for for those fans that are down on them, perhaps the it's the squandered opportunity uh, that this was because there isn't an awful lot of Alien versus Predator that actually goes on. It, the, you can pretty much compile all those sequences into about a 10 minute YouTube video over both films. Um, okay. So I suppose, you know, they don't, they don't particularly do anything with them. Um, I, I think they like, you know, it, it, did it ch- I think it cheapens both franchises somehow. I don't know. Uh, because, you know, uh, the aliens, the aliens reproduce very quickly in the first Alien vs. Predator, uh, Predator movie, uh, probably because they want to get the aliens out, guys. This is what people have come to see. Um, yeah, the, the first film was criticised for holding, you know, going for the PG-13 rating and cutting the gore down. So let's have the gore, guys, in, in the second film. The second film, you know, you, you love it because you've said it, it, it you it goes against your expectations. It goes against your genre expectations. Uh, for me, it was just kind of, I don't know, I've I never really seen it once. And, and like, that was not the sequel I was expecting to see after seeing the first Alien vs. Predator film. Really. Um, you know, there's the Predator Alien for some reason can lay eggs in other people, okay, whatever. I don't know. And also, bizarrely, at the end, the government like, no, nuke it all! It was like, what's a very strange reaction? You know nothing about these aliens. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I, as I say, the opposite. The op- I said before, the opposite of love is not hate; it's apathy. I'm, I'm quite apathetic towards them. I think it's it, it's kind of a squandered opportunity, perhaps. But you know, if you love them, Leo, I, I wouldn't take them away from you for the world. You have them. You enjoy them. I was much more in line with uh, Predators. Is probably more my kind of. This is my third Predator film, guys. You, yes. you just enjoy those ones. Well, it is. I think that there's a, there's several points that I could check off there. I think that one of the things is that you say it's a squandered opportunity, and I understand that there is a certain feature. I mean, obviously, Aliens vs. Predator became big video games and comics. Both of those set the stage. Yeah. And so the fans of the video games and the comics are feeling disappointed. Like, there is a certain segment, a wedge of the fan base, that are adamant that what they want is a zero dialogue Aliens versus Predator, no humans. Oh, no, no, you, you've got to have effect. humans in the middle, like, like a sandwich. Right. Well, that, you're, that, that's, yeah, I mean, I'm well, just... Well, I, I, feel, I feel that's a perfectly practical way to approach filmmaking, otherwise you might as well just make a, make a, a CGI yeah. feature, if it's just yeah. going to be Predators oh, and yeah, Aliens. No. I, I'm recounting, and, um, recounting just a, a wish that some people have. Not very many, but there is a vocal minority. They're like, the humans just get in the way. It should be aliens versus predator, and it should all be, you know, just a sort of science fiction bun fight between the two races. I'm not sure that would make a great movie. Hollywood is not sure that would make a great movie. But one of the things was, if you remember, Alien 3, yes, before Alien 3 script 
was finished. In fact, before anything had happened, the only thing they knew is that they wanted Sigourney Weaver and that there was going to be an Alien 3. They made an advert for a film that had no script and didn't exist, in which they said, Alien 3, when Alien comes to Earth. Uh, you, you see me defending Alien 3? No, 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 I'm not, ask, I'm not asking you to defend it. What I'm saying is that after Aliens... Everyone had this idea, and I think there were certain segments of the population that went with this, that the next thing, aliens would come to Earth. That that is what people have been waiting for. And I think there were people who were like, yeah, that would be boss. Although they were picturing it being post-aliens. So aliens would come to Earth in a sort of science fiction future, and there would be this pitched battle between aliens and humans on future Earth. But the film studio were like, well, that would be very expensive. Why don't we have aliens come to modern Earth? But that makes the, the sort of the evolution of the of the you say, let's come to let's come let's come to modern Earth, and then they go to a temple in the middle of nowhere. They might as well be in a different. Well, planet. yeah, and that is that was why when I first saw the first Alien versus Predator, I was like, well, that's no good because they've come to Earth in a sense, but not in a place where they're particularly of any threat. So then, of course, AVP2 comes out. And they went, no, let's do it. Let's put them in the middle of America. Let's have their spaceship up from the first one crash. And in, in, back, in, in, in a small town in America. And and let's just, just let sort them, this out. Let's yeah. just sort this out. Let's just do that film. And everyone hated it. But the, the evolution is, you say that the army knew nothing about it, but they knew it. They don't know anything about the xenomorphs. That is true, because they won't come up until after, until after Prometheus. Yeah. Um, but they know about Predator. But they know about the Predator because they've had the South American jungle and the Danny Glover incident in between. Yeah, but we're talking about nukes here. That, that's that's a very aggressive weapon that's going like, to leave a big nu- nuclear stain on your country as well as wipe out millions of your own citizens. It's like, these these guys aren't that big a threat. They turn up and they kill a few people and they go away again. It's a different sort of pest management situation I don't going know, on. there's a genre... By all means, send in the drones at the end a nuke... Of- at the end of Return of the Living Dead, they nuke the town where the living dead... You know, that's zombies is contaminating the infection. You know, the, the predators aren't an infection. Predators are very few in number. There's been no predator army ever in a movie. Uh, but there is an implication. There is an implication which is ridiculous, I know. But then, I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about a science fiction movie, that um, Wayland and Utani, who are not the same company at this point in the timeline, that they kind of know stuff, and that's why they nudged the army into nuking it, but how they know anything, I don't... Oh, of course, of course we know how Wayland knows about it, because he was in the Arctic, so he knows about the aliens. In fact, the aliens he knows about are the ones that reproduce in about 15 minutes. So if the Wayland Corporation says to the army, no, seriously... If that alien ship is the one that we think it is, then about three days ago, they just completely trashed an entire military operation and we've lost contact with our CEO over there. But the reports we got back that there's something that is, you know, then it it kind of goes, well, I suppose, bear in mind the fact you've got a lot of money and you can show us footage of the eight, the first movie. We'll nuke the place because we haven't got a choice because it looks like a biohazard. So there are explanations. It doesn't put a scene in that shows that, but you could you could generalise from the overall timeline. Because at the end, of course, the Utani Corporation shows that its interest is really in the Predator technology. Um, But the problem is, I think, that there is a certain section of the fan base that call that kind of fan service. Like, the whole thing is just this cynical attempt to fan service. 
But I'm like, really? I don't. I think yes, to a certain extent, they want to name check things for the fans. Similarly, in fact, to the Resident Evil things. But I don't. I think they're having fun with it. I don't think they're doing it. You know, obviously, everybody wants to make money, but I don't really get the feeling that they're being exploitative. In her, we don't. I, don't I think, know. from my recollections, I have only seen it once. But the Predator, he just kind of he doesn't do very much. In, in Requiem, he follows around, he burns some bodies, eventually starts catching up with the alien, bang, dead. Um, so, you know, it was like, oh, is that it? Aye. No, they play the beats uh, okay. No, they play, he plays the beats okay. I mean, he gets to it. The first thing he does is burn up the... The point is that when he first burns up the get first... Get on couple, with it! Yeah, when he burns up the first couple of bodies, which actually is pretty quick. I mean, a lot happens in Predator versus... Uh, Predator, AVP Requiem, because... It's only like 93 minutes long or something. So he has, because then he burns the bodies up. And that's a reminder that, yeah, you remember in the first 10 minutes of this movie, we killed a nine year old boy or whatever, 12 year old boy. Uh, remember that? Bit? Well, yeah, you're fine, with, fine with it, but it is genre defying expectation. The little kid is supposed to be in a science fiction movie of this genre. The one who runs back into town going, aliens are coming, aliens are coming, and nobody believes him. And and that's what you're expecting. And then no we killed him. And it's like yeah, oh, no, okay, yeah. it's all over with very quickly. He's walking with his dad's in the woods, face huggers, next scene, wake up. <clears throat> right, there we go. Well, so you're at the minute a minute ago you said get on with it. Now you're complaining it's moving too quickly. He burns those No 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 no. I'm talking about the predator. The predator's oh, yeah. bumbling around. Well he doesn't and, because then and, the next thing and, he does is like, he tracks he have tracks. all this backstory with the with the with, with the human characters, which is terribly tedious. Oh yeah, well okay, so what so then you're irritated because they hit a human person beat. Look, I'm not that passionate about it. It's like I watched it and I was like that is my review of the film. It's not something I'm like, I, I feel, I would go back and watch it and I'll make some notes and then I'll go toe-to-toe with you. As it was, I watched it. It didn't leave much of an impression. I go, well, there we are. Uh, and like, uh, you, you were raved about it and I was like, really? Yeah. yeah just, just different experiences with the film, Leo. I'm like, I don't want to take away from you a film you really, really enjoyed. No, 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 I'm not Don't trying to... tell me my opinion is not my opinion. No, no, I'm not telling you that your opinion is not your opinion. What I'm saying is that, that these things can be answered by things that... Yeah, I mean, I understand that a lot of people hated the, the human thing, particularly because it was... The writer kind of got really into this one joke that I did enjoy, which was that I think you're supposed to think that one of the brothers is going to die, and they both do, obviously, because they get blown up by a by a nuclear bomb or whatever, but that you imagine that the the younger brother is going to survive with his girlfriend and then she gets offed. And, and, and I think that that's... If you like that joke, you find it funny and you think that's really clever. But if you don't care about that joke, then you're not going to care about that entire section of the plot. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that if you re-examine it, the, I mean, I think it's your thing of the Predator doesn't do much. I, my experience of him is he has an action sequence where he, he gets the aliens in the sewer and then a couple of them escape. And then he has an action sequence where there's aliens in a factory and he has to get the aliens. And at the same time, the humans are attacking him. So they have a whole plot line where that predator goes around trying to mop up the alien mess. But obviously, you found that the beats in between where they were hitting the human storyline got in the way of that alien versus predator plot line. 
And that's perfectly fine. I'm not trying to take that away from you. That if you felt well, that, that it's wasn't like a... we, the viewers are. So, it's always awkward when the viewers are so much further ahead than anyone else in the movie. None of the characters are particularly wise, other than, gosh, those aliens are bad. By the end of the movie, are they? Yeah. Well, so... my my well, my experience of that is that um, that everything that happens with a human cast is the author of the screenplay or authors in this case winking at you like you know this like the whole thing where there's a monster in the garden and he goes over to the window and then the monster in the garden is an alien and ah the hilarity you know that if you find that kind of stuff amusing then fine and if you don't i can see it would be a massive millstone around the film's neck because it is roughly 50 percent of the film's Running time is the jokes like that. Um, and I, I disagree with people who think that you shouldn't have references, but maybe you find them tedious, and I think that's fine if you do. I didn't. I like well, it. Well, it's, it's also the, the, the final thing in the movie. It's because Wayland and Katani are two separate companies at this point. And I believe it is Katani at the end of Requiem that has the Predator yes, weapon. Yes, Katani are interested in Predator. And, 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 and it cuts the black at the end. It's like, no... No, you see, that's actually interesting, and we got to it at the end, and basically it's just there to name check for the fans. Well, it, ah, but then you miss the the Paul Anderson Resident Evil philosophy that if, I mean, I think AVP did quite a good job of burying that franchise line because if it had had any legs at all, Death Race that Anderson made with Jason, Jason Statham got two sequels with Luke Goss because they were like. Yeah, that that's working. People are buying into this. Resident Evil is famously on its sixth sequel. So AVP Requiem must have been done, done really, really, really badly for them not to have gone, yeah, we'll spin that wheel again. It must I mean, yeah, it must have been... That's, the- that's, an interesting, that's an interesting point, actually, because, you know, I don't mind watching the first two the first two Blade movies. I have no particular problem watching those. The third one's all right. Um, you know, I, you know I, I, I love my other mindless... Well, minus is not so many years, but we like Underworld, we like other things like this. There isn't really a competent human protagonist. They develop on the first movies and then it's never used again. So there isn't really that, that veteran that can just go through this like you do have with the Resident Evil franchise, that I guess. one single protagonist. Although they try, and out, through. they try and single out Rayco Aylesworth to be that character in uh, AVP2. But... Um, the whole point is that then Paul Anderson is thinking that Resident Evil and AVP are like his babies now. The studio aren't going to take them off them. And I think he actually relishes the fact people don't like his stuff because it means nobody's going to take that toy away from him. And then when AVP 2 was that bad that it actually managed to kill it, that little thing he put at the end to hook into the next movie, which has worked with the Resident Evil franchise, didn't work. Because they were going to go on, I think, and do something about that. Well, but I, I will time. say, if they had made an AVP3, I would have gone to the cinema and seen it, or I would have got the DVD and seen it and bought it, most likely, because at this stage it might as well. Then again, I don't think I'm going to get Prometheus. But um, uh, I, I would have followed through, because I've come this far, might as well. It's the third one. If yeah. you can't get that together by the end, end of a trilogy, then then yes, I'm going to walk away. So, but, um, yeah. I, don't, yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely think that that's an interesting point. You, 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 you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's 
he was expecting that it would make enough money that they would put the same small budget together and give him a third one. And it clearly, obviously, didn't. So, you know, that's why it doesn't exist. But I think he's actually quite competent at that stuff, to be honest, whereas I, uh, most people don't. So there we go. I think that kind of uh, wraps us up there. I think that it, it does definitely come down to the fact that at the end, the one sticking point I and me and Sue have against the rest of the universe is that we think that AVP... Actually, we've met other people. It's like we're a little secret club. AVP Requiem, it was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And there are many well, people... Yeah, get some crowdsourcing in. You'll get that third film, guys. Oh, I don't, I'm not really that bothered. They made Predator subsequent. To, <laughs> I, I don't mean, think uh, I'll ever find anybody who'll agree with me that Blade 3 was okay. It was oh, God, nice. Blade 3. Yeah, God, we haven't even... Discussed. Yeah, I, right. This is the thing. I can totally agree with everybody else where I'm, I don't like Blade Trinity. It doesn't matter how many times I watch it and how much I, I'm pulling for it. And I mean, the thing is, unlike Riddick, where I was pulling for Riddick and then it actually is offensive, there's nothing offensive in Blade Trinity. See, I, I like well, no, it, it was just not as good as the first two films, and that's, that, that's its worst sin, as far as I can tell. No, I like all three of the Blades, but for different reasons. So, yeah. yeah, so there, there we go. go. So, there I mean, go. But I don't think I'm ever going to convince anybody of Blade. Well, so I, I, I think... I think... <laughs> What's, what's kind of interesting, although having come through the, the other side of our discussion about things we love that are, are, are obviously that we agree are bad, but we love them anyway, uh, are kind of like vampires are very prominent. Vampire mythology is very prominent. Yeah. Like mythologized franchises are very prominent. Yes, I think so that's I think the, key the, the fanboys thing. within us. But horror in general, because I can think of a lot of horror films that I love that are like that. I mean, Thirteen Ghosts is another one that yes, I like. Yes, everyone hates Thirteen Ghosts, and but I, I love like it, it. And I like it. There's a lot of horror, yeah. horror genre. Hellraiser. Hellraiser has a few I love of those. that franchise. Mythology again. And that's got, yeah. It's just when mythology goes off. Yeah. It's anything that has that kind of mythology that uh, that some people either get it or other people don't. And it's that. And, a, and horror has a lot of those mythologies. So horror franchises and sci-fi tends to have some of those mythologies. So it's those kind of genres that tend to hit those notes a lot more. So yeah, it's it's odd that it's those kind of things. We, that weirdly, tend to hit the, the, them. the the long mythology horror franchises which are popular, I don't like. I'm not particularly keen on Nightmare on Elm Street, and I don't mm. really like Friday the Thirteenth. So, yeah, but it's, it's that's, sli- that's slightly different because, you know, with some of those, you can positively miss out a few of the sequels in between and not really lose anything. Mm. You're not necessarily going to get a continuing story. It's like, that monster's back again. So there yeah, we go. Rather oh. than, yeah. I, think that's an interesting, anyway. I think that's an interesting point. I think the point is that in this case, there's... Parts of mythology, and I think to some people things are a mess. Yeah. Whereas possibly in my head, I'm making connections which are not obvious. Yeah. But they could be inferred. But other people aren't making those inferences, yeah. so they're just like it's a mess. Yeah. Whereas I'm going, oh, I can accept this. Yeah. And that I I understand that when you get into that big mythology, things do tend to fall off the edge. Yeah. It is silly. But in a nice way, in a comforting way. Yeah. And other people don't find it comforting. They just think it's a mess. And they think the story writer should jolly well have tied up all those loose plot yeah. threads and explained everything. And if he doesn't, I'm going to have a tantrum. Yeah. So, yeah. And as says, it tends to be in certain genres more than others, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. 
So, uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, from <laughs> the right. vampires, werewolves, aliens, predators, demons, and all the other people that we've met and checked during the course of this. this <laughs> yes. Christmas podcast. One, one place you can go to tell us that you love our podcast, even though it's truly awful, is our Facebook page. <laughs> Good one. Yes, which you can find on facebook.com slash revenge of the 80s kids. And that's 80s as in numbers. So 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up our, our podcast there. We occasionally put links and very occasionally have discussions. But podcasts of what it's all about, and you can find those at Podomatic. So point your browsers to 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids.podomatic.com Please go there, and you will find all our current podcasts there, and subscribe to us using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Our archive shows can be found on... Uh, currently, Leo Stableford, and actually by now it may not be anymore, but at the time of recording, you may find a thing after the credits saying they've moved, or you might find a notice on this site that says, go here. But at the moment, as far as I know, they're on leostableford.com, but soon they will have a home all their own. Um, and at the moment, uh, where are we now in the year? This, this is the problem. Before we've got Christmas. We're still before Christmas. So you've only got a couple of weeks left to catch up on your Bridgetown Tales, which means you may have to print out the entire blog and sequester yourself in your bedroom to get through. <laughs> it's longer It's longer than two volumes of Lord of the Rings, Bridgetown Tales. <laughs> so there's quite a lot to get through, but it's a cheery, cheery that's comedy your sales fairy pitch? tale serial. So, uh, yeah, that's there we go. And that's at bridgetowntales.blogspot.com. Which is sometimes illustrated by Justin, who you can find on his <laughs> Deviant Art yes, page. Yes, sometimes on our podcast. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I will plug Justin for you. So, yeah, you can find Justin on his Deviant Art page at Justin Wyatt. So. But uh, Sue is the ghost in the machine. She can't be found anywhere on the internet. Well, you know, I won't add you even if you do find me on the internet. So, you know, unless I know you, I won't talk to you. Sorry, get yeah. over it. There we go. <laughs> so, whereas the rest of whereas the 80s boys are all attention whores, the 80s girls have more sense. And uh, that that seems like a fitting night to say Merry Christmas, everyone, and uh, and a Happy New Year, or at least uh, a Happy New Alien versus Predator Year, or yeah, I don't know, like whatever. That. Yeah. So bye anyway. Yes. Yes. Merry Christmas. I've got to start putting up tinsel for our upcoming Christmas show. But yes, Merry Christmas, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Bye.